Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike. And with Ian. As we're reading through the Aubrey Matron novels of Patrick O'Brien. We're in the midst of Fortune of War, and we've moved actually pretty far along here. Ian, can you give us a little summary about what happened last time and maybe tell us a bit about what we might find this episode? Certainly, Mike. My pleasure. Well, last time, after setbacks and reverses and shipwreck and disaster, Jack and Stephen shared in the Royal Navy's disappointment. You might even say the Royal Navy's humiliation mm. by being aboard ship for the defeat of HMS Java by the USS Constitution. Having been taken prisoner by the Americans, they're both now ashore in Boston with the War of 1812 underway. Stephen's free on parole to walk around the town, but we learned last time that Jack has been holed up in the Asclepia. This is a lunatic asylum where he's recovering from his wounds and fretting about the progress of the war, but also he managed to put himself out of favour with the American authorities who are suspicious of his history as Captain of the Leopard. So, Mike, I, th I thought I might look into the Wikipedia plot summary because it gives us quite a good hint, I think, of where we're headed to this week. Very good. So the Wikipedia plot summary says, Maturin becomes reacquainted with Louisa Wogan and Michael Herapath. And when last we left our heroes, they were hearing the laughter of Louisa Wogan on the stair in the Asclepia. Maturin's reacquainted with Wogan and with her lover, Michael Herapath. Maturin's going to meet their daughter, Caroline, and Michael's father, George. And George follows a bit of a Patrick O'Brien pattern that we might dig into. He's a wealthy merchant. He's also a loyalist whose trade has been interrupted by the war. Maturin is going to learn that Diana Villiers is in town, still the mistress of the American Harry Johnson, who's a slave owner. We're going to witness a visit by Harry Johnson to Jack Aubrey. And we're going to see some shifting in the ground between Jack and Stephen and who's playing the role of spy and who's the object of suspicion by the other side. Mm. So all of this mutual suspicion building and we have Johnson and Ponte Canet and a French agent called Dubreuil all showing up in Boston, thickening the plot, I think, for Stephen Maturin. So lots for us to talk about this week, Mike. Yeah, in the uh, cold winter winds of Boston, things are getting a little hot for Jack and Stephen here. Oh, yeah. So let's talk about Louisa Wogan, because the encounters that Stephen has with Louisa Wogan are, are going to be, I think they're going to be quite informative for Stephen, but they also seem to have a bit of a different tone from when Stephen was last in touch with Louisa. Right. You know, it's so fascinating. I think he's, you know, he's heard her laughter. She comes in, she asks him to come visit. And I think he's a little surprised at the reception that he gets here. After you know having her deliver this poison pill, which had such a devastating impact on the French intelligence service, also I, I'm I don't know how much it showed up in the American intelligence service, but it certainly has. I mean, Louisa says to him, "Do you know they hanged Charles Pohl, the friend of mine in the Foreign Office? I told you about long ago." And she says, "I have a pretty good idea of who fabricated them." These you know she's talking about this all this intelligence that she had carried on. She said, you know, who did that with the help of people in London? And indeed, in my own heart, I'm quite sure he is one of them, although I did not suspect him at the time with his open, rather stupid sea dog airs. Oh. So Louisa is welcoming Stephen because she thinks Jack 
is the espionage agent that has poisoned all this information and sent it through with her. Oh, my, I, I can almost hear our guest of a couple episodes ago, Brian Wilson, yeah. kind of shaking his head and going, yeah, I feel your pain, brother. This is, this is a real horrible sort of heart sink moment. It's funny, I, I missed it the first couple of times I read through because I was just enjoying the fact that at this point, the pace picks up because all of the spy stuff is happening in the same place. All of the, the heroes and the enemies and the antagonists and the protagonists are all pretty much in Boston. So it can all happen you know, at a moment's notice. But actually reading it more slowly, this is a real horrible shifting of the ground under Stephen's feet. So all of this great success that he's had suborning Louisa Wogan and taking care of traitors like Charles Pohl, suddenly he sees it's been turned inside out and it's Jack who's the object of the suspicion. And oh gosh. I'm, I'm with you. They're, they're, they've been wondering how come everybody else is getting paroled and Jack is, I mean, getting exchanged. You know, he and Stephen are paroled, but uh, yeah. they haven't been exchanged. What's going on? And to add to the whole, you know, everything going on all at once, everybody being in the same place, Mrs. Wogan lets him know that Diana and Harry Johnson will be in town on Wednesday, right? Stephen's thinking about all this as Louisa takes him home to see Michael again, Michael Harapath, who'd been his his surgeon's mate there in our last book here on Desolation Island, and and to meet their new daughter, Caroline. You know, Michael's excited. He's going to publish his Chinese poetry translations, helped by Johnson. Um, he still wants to be a doctor, but he doesn't have the means for an education, and he is gratefully, although perhaps a little begrudgingly, living on an allowance from his father. And his father has invited Stephen to come meet him, you know, come meet Mr. Harapath, George Harapath, the next evening for dinner. This does sound like it's going to be kind of weird, doesn't it? I think we knew earlier on that actually Harapath had taken one of his father's allowance checks and pretty much banked it and spent it in digs with Louisa Wogan. Right. So... (laughs) There's a bit of tension between the father and the son here, but, you know, Stephen must wonder what, what he's walking into. Absolutely. And it's it's funny because we're always so excited about O'Brien and the dinner scenes and, and, and what happens at these get-togethers. But we've got perhaps a little foreshadowing here that, uh, you know, Louisa Wogan has offered him tea. And uh, <laughs> Stephen is thinking- Which is that- a very Boston thing, right? <laughs> Oh, very Boston. Absolutely. You know, very British to have tea, very Boston to have tea. And Stephen, I guess, you know, who's a coffee fan, but also happy to have tea. But Stephen tasting it is thinking back to that, you know, when he was marooned with the guano filled hollows of of warm rainwater, that uh, that that only tasted a little bit worse than this tea. And she offers him some some spoon bread, this uh, this southern delicacy, which Stephen thinks of as an amorphous gray substance. He's knocking it back with. So, you know, the the first little dinner tea get together that O'Brien is presenting us with here, not a, not a real good one. Could have perhaps been improved with the addition of a splash of goat's milk all round, I think. <laughs> right. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> and in this very unappetizing tea party, we get a bit of Louisa Wogan as the slightly sort of lush, spendthrift, slightly unreliable, slightly vain character. Maybe a little bit of Diana Villiers' character in there as well. And she seems to be painting herself as the representative of Southern civilization in this desert of, you know, narrow-minded, penny-pinching Northerners, which 
probably not very fair on the people of Boston. Right. Well, and it is interesting because we've always had set up this Louisa, Diana comparison, how striking they are. I've been kind of reading this as Louisa as a not quite as good model of Diana, but good enough to have attracted Stephen's attention, both in his what he would call his animal spirits as well as his intelligence (laughs) eye. And, And now we've got them both here, both in Boston coming together again. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It will. And meanwhile, Stephen's got these two lines of contact running in parallel because the next dinner that he's going to sit down at is, I think we're allowed to say it's a good dinner yeah. with uh, Herapath Senior and Herapath Junior. I don't think we got very much detail about the food, but it seemed to have gone off pretty well, yes. companionably, and finished with a toast to the king. Right. Oh, and to trade's increase. That's right. A quick end to Mr. Madison's war. And for, you know, un- unlike the earlier, a decent cup of tea. Yeah. So... It's funny. Now, Stephen, having been the one scoping out Louisa Wogan as a recruit, he finds himself on the other end of that particular process because Herapath Senior seems to be checking Stephen out before being recruited to help (laughs) with Herapath's group. I don't think we're meant to see Herapath as a spy, but he clearly sees himself as a mover and shaker among people who are on the loyalist tendency and wants to put Stephen in touch with this group of Federalists and Tories who can, you know, maybe maybe use Stephen's help or somehow foster the, the cause of loyalism and perhaps foster a quick end to this war. And yeah. there's an expression of gratitude here as well to Stephen for helping Michael. He's very keen to take money out of his purse and redeem the debt that Herapath Jr. seems to owe to Stephen and they have this very sort of frank man-to-man conversation about, do you think my son would do well at medical school? And do you think it's worth the fees, basically? And Stephen gives young Herapath a leg up and says, yes, I think it would be. We see George Herapath, Herapath Sr., with his interest yeah. in Stephen, Stephen trying to still promote Michael. And then a little bit, you know, as Stephen is asking him about Harry Johnson, this man that mm. Diana has run off with, and he learns that Johnson, very wealthy, probably owns more slaves than anyone in Maryland, a Republican advisor to the Secretary of State, and that he often comes to Boston with an eye towards Louisa Wogan. And it kind of, what we're starting to hear here is that it sounds like, and we know that she's probably working in Johnson's employ. At the same time, it sounds like George hopes that you know, he, he sees something going on more than just a professional relationship mm-hmm. with Johnson and Louisa. And George, while he's been upset with Michael, is really in love with his granddaughter, Caroline. And he would like oh. to find a way to keep Caroline, <laughs> perhaps lose Louisa, who he is not at all fond of, and get Michael set up the right way. And it sounds like this, you know, this kind of all these different relationships running with Johnson, with Stephen, with George, with, are all kind of boiling together here. They are. And as I think we're meant to see this as potentially a bit of a risky scenario for Stephen. Because on the one hand, Herapath's keen to help and wants to have this sort of bluff fellas helping each other out relationship with Stephen. 
but he's also being portrayed as a bit of a blusterer and a bit naive and a bit self-interested, really. And you can almost feel Stephen drawing his horns in and thinking, I don't want to go too far and engaging with this guy. I don't want to go and meet with all of his loyalist buddies and get myself outed as something that I don't want to be seen as. Right. Well, and, and Harapath, to your point, Ian, you know, George is saying, come meet with all my confidants at my house. Yeah. And Stephen's saying, whoa, 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 you're a pretty known loyalist. Uh, let's have a discreet meeting at an out-of-the-way tavern, not at your house. Yeah. And so I think Stephen is a little worried here. Now, Stephen is very interested, and I think we're interested, that Harapath is really concerned, as you've mentioned. He's got this trade going with China. He's got two ships at anchor that could be bringing treasures from the Orient and shipping goods from America over there. And he, you know, George is very interested in getting that shipping back running again, getting things mended with the British. And George even goes to visit Jack. I guess this is part of his loyalist tendencies, too. He wants to specifically thank him for saving Michael's life. But I think, again, as this loyalist, he, uh, you know, he wants to see the great Jack Aubrey, which was kind of fascinating here. Yeah. And, and isn't it great that there's somebody in town who wants to be the friend of both Jack and Stephen. I think there's a few yeah. people out there who want to be Stephen's friend, but not Jack's, and maybe a few vice versa. Right. But Herapath wants to help both of them. And he has this really great rapport with Jack. And it, it strikes me that this is one of the Patrick O'Brien go-to themes that we're seeing here. A, a bluff, well-meaning merchant for Jack to be charmed by and to, to charm. Jack has this really great conversation with Mr. Herapath about the ships. He compliments Herapath. He's, oh, those two fine barks with the Nelson Checker and the Poltuck Gallant Masts. Mm -hmm. Yes, the finest in the harbour. And after he's had this conversation, Herapath is really enthused with Jack as well. He said, the very type of sea officer, no coldness, no pride. Oh, and a prodigious fighting captain. How well I remember his action with the Cacafuego. If only Michael could have been like him. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, I, and, and I think we've got this little brew going in this chapter of loads of Patrick O'Brien themes churning over together. So one is the well-meaning merchant ashore. The other one is parents feeling a bit let down by their children and vice versa. And that comes up a few times. Yeah, Jack's going to have a, a bit more to say about his relationship with his father, General Aubrey, later on in the canon. And I think that probably... It's easy to say is saying something about Patrick O'Brien himself and his relationship with his father, because there aren't very many fathers and sons who esteem each other and are in touch with each other and are in good odor with each other. And we're seeing that here with uh, the two Herapaths. And it's fascinating as, as Jack wonders how that could possibly have happened. Stephen gives him a little bit of an ominous <laughs> warning saying, look, let me tell you, it could even happen with your son. You know, it, it could turn into a bookworm or a methody parson, says Stephen. <laughs> God <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> at, least he, oh at least he didn't say papist. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> oh, man. And there's a, I'm not going to trail any massive spoilers, but there's a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of foreshadowing there. We've got to reach forward a few books. But there's an in. Oh, no, I can't say anymore. Can't say anymore. Well, we always have to leave these breadcrumbs anyways, because it is amazing what yes. O'Brien puts out there. And, and just innocuously in little throwaway comments that lo and behold, wow, we're paying attention. There they are again. Exactly. He reaches a long way forward and sometimes he reaches a long way back as well, which is, which is lovely to see also. So Jack and Herapath Sr. seem to like the cut of each other's jibs, if that's okay. 
And Stephen is observing that this is actually a really good thing for Jack. I think earlier on he had said, what you need is a victory, even quite a small victory by sea. Otherwise, you will eat your heart out, pull into a decline. Failing that, steel and bark. And he's getting as much steel and bark as I think Stephen and the medical establishment can get into him. So what he really needs is the taste, the prospect of a victory. And maybe he's getting that from this very upbeat conversation with Herapath Senior. Yeah, that that is helpful. And because we know Jack has been a little bit worried. He's been, you know, afterwards he's talking to Stephen about figuring out that, no, no, he could not have fired on the Alice B. Sawyer, that that's when they were being chased by the Dutchman. Uh, so Jack's got his concerns about his, you know, will I get exchanged? And what about these trumped up charges? Stephen has his own concerns because Diana is going to be in town tomorrow. And, you know, he's asking Jack and he's wondering himself, you know, whether to inflict himself upon Diana and that, he, you know, that, yeah. that perhaps it won't be welcomed or it might be untimely or whether he should you know, as Stephen says, it affect a frigid indifference and let her make the first step, mm. always provided that she should choose to do so and that she <laughs> knows of our being here. Right? Well, it, it was already a surprise to Wogan that Stephen knew Diana Villiers. Yes. Wogan, in her own slightly disingenuous way, is trying to recruit Stephen to spy for the American slash French cause through the offices of Johnson. So I think all of his intelligence gathering and manipulation was at, was at a high point coming into this chapter. And now we see, oh, this could all unravel again. This could really run out of control, having been a thing that he'd worked so hard to control and to set up really professionally to begin with. Yeah, it's it's a little bit scary here. And we, I think this brings Stephen back to the reservation that he has, the disillusionment that he has about his life as a spy. Because even though he pulls off a spectacular coup like he had done, up to this point with Louisa Wogan, he's realizing that this this lying and the dis, as he calls it the dissimulation was really getting to him. He says he was sick, sick of it all. He was sick even of simple dissimulation, and he longed to be shot of it, to be able to speak openly to any man or woman he happened to like or to dislike, for that matter. Yeah, <sighs> yeah, and he's you know because he's thinking you know I've had to do this already. Now I'm being recruited by George Herapath. I know Johnson's going to be recruiting me uh, because Louisa has been setting me up for that, and he does not want to do that. To ra- let, let's draw together all the foreshadowing that's going on here. We've got Dubreuil and Ponte Canet, French spies in town or arriving in town. We've got Diana Villiers and her slave owning boyfriend harry johnson in town or arriving in town we've got royalist sympathizers renegade merchant ship owners oh you know there's there's danger at every corner yeah yeah danger will robinson danger danger (laughs) (laughs) so i i think just in case everybody's getting a bit too excited with this perhaps we should go and uh just grab a glass of something calming mike and perhaps come back after a short break what do you think i think that's a grand idea (laughs) Welcome back. You're still with The Lubber's Hole. You're still with Ian and Mike. And we are with Jack and Stephen in Boston. Mike, we mentioned earlier on in the episode that there's this very uneasy feeling as we learn that Jack is beginning to fall under suspicion of of spying since Stephen's done such a good job of concealing his own spying. And next, I think we start to learn a little bit more about just how big a threat that is for Jack. 
Absolutely, Ian. We've got Stephen now seeing that he's got a very high level French intelligence agent, you know, in Washington, uh, not not that far away. And he comes back, he's talking to Jack and he realizes that Jack's been talking to Mr. Andrews, who's this new English agent for prisoners, and that Jack has telling him all he knows, you know, kind of this reconnaissance of the harbor from his window and is making notes to give to him later. And Stephen is aghast. You know, Stephen, being a a knowledgeable, intelligent agent, is saying, Jack, Jack, wait a minute, you're suspected of being connected to intelligence and you cannot be caught spying. And Stephen really wants to give Jack a low profile. I think Stephen realizes that things are heating up. Johnson's close. And he's saying, basically, Jack, you know, don't talk to anybody. Stay in your bed. Pretend to be sick. Yeah, I want to keep you covered. And of course, Jack, as usual, is, oh, no, no, no. I'm not concerned, says Jack. If they suspect me of intelligence, I'm sure it will blow over. It will soon blow over. <laughs> you know, just doesn't realize the danger here. No. And for me, that's a bit of a, a hark back to, I think it was post-captain, yes. when the French French officer says, oh, I saw Maturin on the headland with the telescope. And Jack laughs off the idea of Stephen at that point as an intelligence agent going, oh, he was just looking at birds. But now right. we've got the same thing here, you know, and they both are at risk Stephen at that time and Jack at this time of uh, of being discovered, perhaps without co- complete justification, as, as intelligence agents. And yeah, Stephen's uh, Stephen's still quite composed. I think we get this. Stephen's smiling as he says back to Jack. So your your wits are still there. You're not you're not above a bit of world play. Now I'm going to turn in early because I too wish to be intelligent tomorrow. <laughs> well, this line really resonated with me because I think, especially as this book continues to unfold. Both Jack and Stephen are working in a bit of intelligence and a bit of plotting and a bit of a a really different kind of novel in the canon here where we're all on land. We're all kind of, you know, there's a lot of this intelligence and plotting and it, it, you know, it's not your historical fiction naval genre kind of action that we're heading into here. No, it's not. And Jack and Stephen are becoming shore-based co-protagonists, which is going to be quite exciting, I think. Well put. Now, and, and so far, Jack's really only been in the Asclepia, and most of the action that we've seen has taken place in Asclepia. And I, I, I remember thinking, okay, come on, there must be more to Boston than just one one loony right. bin. So the next thing that we get is Mrs. Wogan taking Stephen to meet Johnson at Franchon's Hotel. I have no idea. How does Patrick Tull pronounce Franchon? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Franchon yeah. in French style or Franchon like Franchon, a right? Franchon. Sounds like the dog, right? <laughs> so. And I, I like the fact that we start to see this hotel like this is going to be the site of some action. This is going to be in a significant location besides the Esclepier, besides Herapath's place, besides the harbour. This French-owned hotel is going to be a place where some important stuff is going to happen. Well, and and almost like we're past the Ruse de Guerre, and yeah. you know this establishment, as you say, in is flying the French colors, and it's pointed out very <laughs> clearly here. So we now know, okay, ah, there's that sail on the horizon. <laughs> we we've had this high place French agent on shore close by. Now we've got this French hotel, yeah. but we have a dapper Stephen Matron heading in with Mrs. Wogan freshly shaved, wearing the best shirt he can find in Boston because 
He's anticipating seeing Diana again. <laughs> Which is the only reason in life why Stephen Maturin ever puts on a clean shirt. Right. <laughs> or thinks about personal hygiene at any level. <laughs> <laughs> My kind of guy. And there's yeah. this real, you almost dare to hope on his behalf that, oh, he's he's got this teenage boy getting scrubbed up thing. And you think, really hope this is going to have a good outcome. And first of all, first of all, we're all sort of impatient, I think, for what's going to happen when Stephen and Diana finally meet up. But he goes through this hail fellow well met chat with Johnson, kind of guy guy talk. Let's let's talk about birds. And Mike, I, I know we have to tread delicately around this because you know we're family friendly on the show here. But I don't think O'Brien's sense of humor was completely family friendly when he said, "Surely." I, are you the, uh, the are you the Stephen Maturin to whom we're indebted for the splendid monograph on boobies? And I th- <laughs> we're invited to speculate about what might be at the front of Stephen's mind <laughs> as he goes what? to visit his lover, um, August, in the hope of meeting his lover. And I think the word boobies comes out about fifteen times in this paragraph. So, well, comes out very often. And you have Stephen saying, you know, he had been marooned on an island with him and he'd grown intimate. With most of the species. Yeah, at the height of the breeding season. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, exactly. Yeah. So we've got from a, a ruse de guerre to a double entendre. I don't know how many more French expressions we can squeeze in. There you go. <laughs> and what, is, what, what exactly does Johnson mean when he says, we are very poor in boobies, alas? <laughs> yeah. This is, uh, th- you know, this is a Me Too moment in the making. I think, I think Stephen, you need to move on to this. Patrick O'Brien, you can't do that anymore. Now, no, no, stop no. It. Enough of the boobies. Enough of the boobies. That's right. right. Well, Stephen, you know, despite this chit-chat, still has his intelligent agent hat on and is kind of feeling out Johnson for how much does Johnson know about Stephen, yeah. Stephen's past relationship to Diana, and, you know, he's starting, I think, to get a feel for if if he does, he's not showing it. So yeah. maybe, maybe he's okay. Yeah. And the initial response from Johnson is very friendly. Like when Johnson steps out to take his business meeting, he says, yes, of course, Mrs. Villiers is in the room along the hall. I, you know, stand on no ceremony, treat the place like your own, spit on the deck and call the cat a son of a bitch, whatever he says, you know. <laughs> He seems really welcoming to Stephen. And I still don't think I know retrospectively whether that's all genuine or not. But anyhow, it all seemed to be fine on the sort of, as I say, on a guy-guy level. Right. But then Stephen gets to turn the handle of the door and walk into the room, and there he is face-to-face with Diana. To me, I mean, this scene really brought back when, you know, Stephen's kind of looking in India at the vultures and his eyes go down and meet Diana's as she's, you know, in her carriage there at the parade so we're back you know almost in bombay diana says she cries Stephen, oh how glad i am to see you at last and i thought gosh that sounds almost i mean for me the feeling is word for word the same yeah and there's physical contact straight away they don't exchange very many words he kisses her warm dry hand he feels the pressure we're getting lots of writing from o'brien about the really immediate first person sensation of the two of them being together and this this being a social occasion that's got some important plot and character points there's got to be refreshment <laughs> so we have coffee and petit yes. coffee and petit four courtesy of Polly the servant right there's a little you know almost a little foreshadow here yeah. you know Stephen she asked you know did you get my note 
No note, Villers. Was it discreet? Oh, yes. Just compliments and begged you to call. So, you know, put a little bookmark there. Diana writing Stephen, but somehow Stephen never got it. No. And it's a really intense, very dense scene to read back. And especially as I'm reading it back for this purpose, really spotting the turns and the moments. He's gone from being mm. excited schoolboy to having tears in his eyes as he sees her. And then very yeah. quickly, as she starts to talk, he's seeing a mood, a tone in Diana that he's never seen before. And he right. talks about how she's she's speaking so fast. He's never seen her this insecure. He's reminded of some of the sort of fast-talking, anxious mood that he sometimes had from Sophie when she's feeling low. And I think he's a little bit unnerved by this. He's never known Diana like this. No, I mean, he says, you know, O'Brien writes, he had the strange impression that she was clinging to him. Mm. O'Brien goes on, and yet, no, not to him, but to some ideal personage who happened to have the same name, or at least to a mixture of this shadow and himself. And quite apart from that, there was some essential change. So I think you're absolutely right, Ian. There's something something really going on between Stephen and Diana here. And I can't see a, an immediate root cause in the text, and I think that's fine. You know, we're about we're invited to speculate. Is it the is it the the new mood of being in a room with Diana, or is it something about his person that's changed? He's speculating about this, and he's quite upset by it. We're very upset by it. This is changing the fundamentals of who he is when he realizes in a room with Diana that it's not the same. Right. And it's interesting. It kind of segues into the scene where, you know, Mr. Johnson comes back, Mrs. Wogan comes in, yeah. uh, Johnson's got with him the Mr. Secretary. We you know, kind of assume, given what we've heard about Johnson before, this might be uh, a cabinet level secretary yeah. of the U.S., the couple who own the hotel. And, and there's all this conversation going on around. Stephen's trying to kind of listen into Johnson's conversation. Uh, somehow a dinner party is arranged and Stephen finds himself saying goodbye and walking out into the fog. But it almost sounds like he's been in the fog here ever since this, you know, yeah. re-meeting with <laughs> Diana. It's funny. I was watching a TV show a long time ago about the production of, of other TV shows. And somebody said, you know what, when it rains in the movies, it's always for a reason. When it rains on TV, it's always for a reason because rain is really costly and difficult and a pain in the ass to put on onto tv so every time it rains uh, it's for a reason and every time it's foggy in a novel especially a novel set close to the sea uh, or a spy novel it's foggy for a reason and stephen's wandering the streets of boston he's got to get i think he's got to get down to the harbor and he's got to get back to the asclepia and i'm taken back as well to the wandering around the the uh, the sand dunes of the downs in post captain when stephen and jack were almost about to fight a duel. This feeling of being isolated and adrift and not really sure of where he was in the world anymore. Right, right. Just in a low-key way, this sense of being lost. Yes. Well, meanwhile, as, as Stephen's a little bit lost, Jack almost seems a little bit found. Yeah. <laughs> He's been found by Herapath Sr., his new good buddy in Boston. Right. And, and Jack and Herapath are in the Asclepia watching watching frigates slipping out of the harbour and Jack's speculating on whether they might, these American frigates, be able to slip past the blockading squadron. And again, I think a little bit of foreshadowing here, Mike, as Herapath is naming the shoals and the banks and the waterways getting out of Boston Harbour. And we get the sense, I think, that Jack is 
getting ready to G himself up for some action here. He's not going to be happy to keep playing the role of Jack on shore. He's ready to become Jack, the captain again. Yeah, well, it says he's, you know, he's exercising his left arm using a chair as if it were a saber. And some of the other residents that he's usually joking around with come in to, to play with him. But it says they sense the savage grief behind his cheerful front. So definitely things are building up in Jack and you, you know, you, you see him with Harapath, you know, really getting the lay of the land, getting himself ready. And you're sort of wondering, wow, what is, what is going on? And you've had Brenton come back to see Jack again. And, you know, he's showing him these papers that they got off of Jack when he was taken prisoner. Mm. They're challenging Jack's explanations as to what they were. Um, and they show Jack a letter from the Admiral yeah. that Jack was to take back to the Admiral's lady and the seal has been broken. And we know from the past that this really uh, upset Jack. Yeah. He thinks this is a real violation. So his anger is seething. He's getting himself ready. We don't know for what yet, but uh, something's coming. Yeah. And it, we've talked in previous novels about the importance of honor to Jack and to other characters. And I think this is the moment where it goes past just being, you know, m- maybe a bit of bad faith on the part of the Americans, or maybe just the natural kind of cost of doing business when you get taken prisoner of war. He's really affronted by the, the disturbance of honor among officers and honor in respecting people's private communication. Yeah. And, and, and Jack decides to get in shape, right? <laughs> and this is another bit of foreshadowing. Jack is ready to get into physical action as well as getting into decisive tactical you know, decision-making action. He's getting ready for a scrap of some kind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Stephen comes back in. He sees that Jack is upset and he, he basically throws all the guests out, you know, and, and Bretton, the, you know, the American who's been interviewing Jack says he's not going to leave. And Stephen sends for the front door porter, a large Native American, an Indian. Mm. And, and it's interesting. He never speaks. But every time Stephen walks past him, Stephen says, ugh. <laughs> you know, when Stephen calls for this porter to come in, they see the size of this Indian, you know, they leave. They, they get the heck out of Dodge here. <laughs> and we've, we've had this character just in the background in the past, but it's a really great piece of Patrick O'Brienism that a secondary character gets to play a little role and they get brought to life. And there's a dialogue between Stephen and the, the Native American that says the Indian listened with something like approval on his face. It was a pleasure, he said, when Stephen had finished thanking him for some earlier service. They were government officials and I hate government officials. You astonish me, says Stephen. You would not be astonished, says the guy, if you're a native of this country, an Aboriginal native. And by the way, this is a Native American, clearly very educated, very at ease with himself. And this is like, an, again, a 1960s, 1970s perspective on the, right. the, the, the nobility and smartness of Native Americans that would have been probably not at the front of mind of a, of a contemporary writer in the early 19th century. Why do you say, ugh, to me? asks the Indian. <laughs> Stephen says, I looked upon it as a usual greeting in the language of your nation. The Huron is represented as saying, ugh, to the pale face in many authors. But if I am mistaken, I ask your pardon. My intent was civil, though perhaps inept. <laughs> and then the Indian says, well, most of the Hurons I know have every reason to say, ugh, to the pale face, French, English, or American. 
In the language that I speak, ug is an expression of disgust, repulsion, dislike. I had thought of resenting it, but it appeared to me that you meant no offence, and then I have a certain fellow feeling for you. We are, after all, both defeated, both victims of the Americans. You know, I couldn't help but picturing this scene in my mind, listening yeah. to Patrick Hall's Patrick rendition, you know, I thought back to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, right. Uh, Chief Bromden. Chief Bromden, the great Will Sampson, yeah. you know, this huge <laughs> Native American, you know, helping Jack, you know, Jack Nicholson in this thing up, up against Nurse Ratchet, the... <laughs> the, well, I think we've got a new Ratchet series coming up. I don't know anything about it other than it's set in this world of Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, yeah. Hey, there's the thought. So uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest would have been about contemporary. Maybe. Oh, it would? Maybe O'Brien could have seen it. Because we're in the, we're in the uh, mid to late know, 70s now in terms maybe, of writing for Patrick O'Brien and maybe even later. Yeah. And I think it's a 75 film. Yeah. Wow. Wow. How about that? Yeah. So Stevens had some setbacks here. He's dismayed by having this very strange reaction to encountering Diana. He's dismayed by what he thinks of as Jack's condition. He hasn't yet seen that Jack is doing isometric stretches in his chair and waving a chair around. He's being harassed by the Navy Department, and he does get the chance to step back into his zone a little bit. And we know that comfort zone for Stephen, among other things, is um, getting back into his role as a physician and a surgeon. And thank heavens for Dr. Choate, who says, I have a cystotomy. And we know that cystotomy, a bladder operation, is one of Stephen's, I'm not going to say favorite procedures, but it's one of his trademark procedures, and it demands concentration and a clear head and a steady hand, and he gets through this. But the steady hand's not going to last. <laughs> so even when Dr. Choate says, take a drink from the secret whiskey stash. Yeah. Stephen's got another way in mind of getting through the night, right? Yeah, sadly, you know, it, it made me wish that he had been able to keep his cello. Uh, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> he reaches for the green bottle and he reaches for laudanum. And poor old Choate, not realizing what an enemy laudanum is to an addict like Stephen, says, oh, yeah, stacks of it in the dispensary. Help yourself. Right. Knock yourself out. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The other thing that happens here, and and boy, I can so relate to this. O'Brien talks about how Stephen, you know, in his role, he's never able to fully open his mind to any other, you know, human being, man or woman. And at the same time, you know, he sees, O'Brien writes, candor as essential as a food or affection. And so he uses his diary as kind of a surrogate for the non-existent loving ear, O'Brien writes, yeah. a very poor surrogate indeed, but one that had become so habitual as to be almost necessary. Yeah. He missed it now, the close-written, coded book. So Stevens turned to laudanum after the whiskey didn't do, and now he's reaching for his journal, which is no longer there, and you know, dying to write to be able to process his mind here, to speak to his closest friend. <laughs> and he, he needs to go into the darkest depths of himself because he's reflecting on the fact that he feels like he no longer loves Diana. And he says, he uses this this metaphor. He says, what could he do with his, if his mainspring, his prime mover is gone? And this is almost Eastern philosophy, Mike. This is Taoism. You know, he's the, the main thing that drives him, his spiritual motivation seems to be got broken or gone. And it says he had known that he would love her forever to the last syllable of recorded time, which is a, a cute little Shakespeare quote. 
Patrick O'Brien's really sparing in his quoting of Shakespeare, quotes all kinds of other people, doesn't often quote Shakespeare. Last syllable of recorded time is a quote from Macbeth, as I'm sure we all know. So he had known that he would love her forever to the last syllable of recorded time. He had not sworn it. And we, we go on to hear that this uh, Stephen loving Diana was so obvious that it needed no proof. It needed no exhibition. You didn't need to breathe. You didn't need to prove that two times two is four. And now it seemed that perpetuity meant eight years, nine months and some days. And the last syllable of recorded time was Wednesday, the 17th of May. How can such things be? He asks himself. And he's reflecting that, you know, perhaps he had completely misunderstood, perhaps that this idea of, of, of love was something that he was immune to, and he analogizes it to a physical ailment. And then he starts to, I think, post-rationalize to himself. He looks for uh, what, what O'Brien calls a hundred quasi-physical conspiring causes. He thought this and burned his papers. Yeah. In, in lieu of his journal, he's writing these notes to himself on this paper about Diana and this lost love and what could this possibly be? And then he burns them. Yeah. yeah. I'm stepping too quickly away from that scene there, but I, I just love how O'Brien in the midst of this, and this, this scene just really struck me. I mean, this scene just, you know, it's like somebody grabbed hold of my heart and squeezed it because yeah. for Stephen not to have Diana, I mean, it's kind of like, wait, 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 wait. This is, you know, I expect this from George R. R. Martin. I don't expect this from O'Brien and not Stephen and Diana. What's going to go on here? But even at the very end of this, as as poignant as this is, Stephen hears somebody singing, Oh, Oh, the Morning Dove. And he's singing it as if his heart would break. Yeah. And, you know, it just goes in passing. And I'm, I'm not thinking about this other than it's this remote, mournful song off in the distance. and. It says that as Stephen listened to this song until the rising tide of laudanum sleep engulfed him. And then later, this is a, a tiny <laughs> mini spoiler, Jack starts singing this song for somebody else. And, and I, I, gosh, I just can't help how powerful this writing is from O'Brien and then how he weaves these little things in and pulls oh, them yeah. back again. And And the whole verse, for what it's worth, goes... Oh, oh, the morning dove says, where can she be? She was my only love, but gone from me. Oh, gone from me. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Okay. We're in the middle of a pandemic, guys. We don't need this. O'Brien, you got you to give a little break here. <laughs> yeah, keep it light. Keep it light. So we, we get a little chink of light, I think, as as the rest of Jack's naval world his naval support network kind of arrives by surrogate because yes. jack's been watching hms shannon this english man of war come into the harbor and he sees philip brooke her captain philip brooke by the way there was a real philip brooke he really was captain of the shannon um in this novel philip brooke has been promoted to being cousin of jack Aubrey. <laughs> that's right and the american captain captain lawrence formerly of the hornet now of the chesapeake again the the real player there was a real captain lawrence aboard the mm -hmm. chesapeake of which more later visits jack to bring a message from none other than formerly midshipman now lieutenant mowat who is apparently recovering in a new york hospital and mowat had been on board the peacock when lawrence was sunk in one of those single ship actions that really demoralized all of our naval friends in the earlier stages of this book 
And we get this nice, this is back into the world of honor just for a moment, the honor among sea officers and seamen. Lawrence had obviously been kind to Moat and Jack feels this strength of fellow feeling with Lawrence. And I think he's appreciating their connection to Moat and thinking about Shannon and the outside world of his, his Navy network. Yeah, a little bit of this, you know, kind of warming up despite all these English losses, despite this antipathy towards the Americans because of these losses. He's like, no, no, here's a fellow officer. Here's a fellow human being. Here's somebody who would do what Jack would do to help a fellow officer. And and I think it can't help but resonate with Jack the way he was treated uh, and the way Lawrence has obviously treated Moet. It's funny, back when we were reading the Mauritius Command, Mike, you talked about how we get this drumbeat as as the odds against the British fleet having sunk very low then start to get better and better. And we've got a really soft, gentle drumbeat here of things not so much turning in the favour, but alliances and resources and kind of pieces falling into place that will help Jack and Stephen do something to, to get them out of where they are. Jack is getting his physical strength back. Jack's in sort of spiritual contact with the Navy now, and he's feeling himself more in his role as a naval officer. Stephen has cemented a bit of an alliance with the Native American in the in the lobby of the of the Esclepia. And Jack's got some knowledge about the rocks and shoals of Boston Harbor, and we've got this offer of help from Aeropath. I can feel a few things coming. We've gone from Danger Will Robinson before our break to huh, something might be brewing. Right, something might be brewing, and it would all be even that much better if poor Stephen and Diana were perhaps in a little bit better place. And I wonder what's going to happen there. Yeah, well, they, Stephen gets to go to dinner. This dinner that was quickly contracted between Johnson and Diana and Wogan and Stephen and Michael Herapath takes place. And Diana's there, it says, outshining everyone with a riviere. And I, I don't think I know exactly what a riviere is, but I can imagine. <laughs> Very dramatic, stunning display of blue-white diamonds right. with a huge stone in the middle. And Stephen notices that there's ill will between Diana and Johnson and Diana and Louisa. They're all not quite on terms. Um, he even notices, chink of hope here, maybe, yeah. an attachment between Johnson and Louisa. And Herapath's father had even said, I kind of hope that this guy Johnson might rid me of Louisa Wogan so that I can stick to my son and my granddaughter. Right. And Stephen notices that Diana is not the same Diana he was before. He's very familiar with Diana in company, maybe putting on a show, but still being snappy and witty. He says, where was her quick, mordant, spontaneous wit, her delicate turning of a wicked phrase? Could she be reduced to anecdotes and set pieces when neither she nor Herapath was a politician. Right. Now, Brian doesn't have a very high regard for politicians, does he? No, no, no. Well, and and horror of horror, she'd also acquired a slight American accent. <laughs> Brian writes dead against our style in Stephen's mind, right? Yeah. And he's then speculating on whether, you know, to what extent are humans in these situations actually genuinely themselves? It says, to some degree, every person's face was the creation of the mind behind it. He's thinking sadly of his own and of Diana's face and form and movement, still reflecting much of the fine, dashing, elegant spirit he had known. So I think he's expressing hope that by artifice, maybe Diana is still okay somehow, Diana. And maybe by artifice and hope and, and pretense, 
he can still make himself fun. Maybe that's pointing us in the direction of maybe he can restore himself to loving Diana because that's something that he really feels the lack of right now. Yeah, well, he he even goes on to then say that, you know, maybe this is all caused by Diana having been, you know, she's really, since she's gotten to America, um, even back in India, you know, she's been living among men, very few women. And he in remarks to himself that the, the woman, Louisa Wogan, who she was hanging around with, speaks like a man. And Stephen's thinking about Diana's behavior at dinner there. And, and Ryan has this line. She has forgotten the distinction between what can and cannot be said. A few yeah. more years of this company, and she would not scruple to fart. <laughs> wow. Okay, then. We've gone from the bean-fed horse to Diana at yeah. dinner table. And we're back onto Stephen realizing and really deeply processing this realization that the love inside him that he took for granted towards Diana is still eluding him. It says yes. he did not did not love Diana Villiers anymore, and it was death to him. Yeah, yeah. He had felt a good yeah. many miseries in his time, but none compared to this cold vacancy within. The evident change was that anger and ill humour, disappointment and frustration had hardened her. Her face was lovely, yet its expression in repose was not amiable. Diana's spirit had diminished, and her courage had begun to fail, if indeed it had not already broken. Oh, man. And this, not a thought just sitting there at the dinner table with everybody else. Johnson's actually gone off to visit with Jack, supposedly to discuss his exchange. So Stephen's sitting here having tea with Diana, and these are the thoughts going through his mind. I think it's good for both of them that they get this chance to talk confidentially. And again, I'm, you know, I'm reminded of how they were together back in India, having these conversations back and forth didn't turn out so well for them as it turned out. But they oh, right, need right. from time to time, I think, to have these, you know, let's talk for a while and then we're away from each other and then we get back again and we're able to dig deeper and be a little bit more candid. And I think candor is something that Stephen really values, as we've heard before. True. And she confides to him. She says, the, the relationship with Johnson had been uneasy from the start. Even if it had not been for the internal business of his divorce, their connection could never have lasted. He was violent and dangerous. He could be perfectly ruthless. He was a philanderer and his behavior towards his blacks was revolting. And again, sl slavery is a theme for Patrick O'Brien. He absolutely detests it. And he's absolutely attaching love of slavery to Johnson is, is our way of saying Johnson's not okay. However, however jovial and companionable he was with Stephen earlier on, he's a slaver and he abuses people. Even to the point, Diana tells him that, you know, that Johnson is very promiscuous. He's promiscuous with all women, but especially with his slaves. And once he's been with a slave girl, would not allow her to marry, you know, to see other men and, and, and was crazy jealous you know, if Diana even talked to other men, even though it, at the time that some of this was happening, he was married and not pursuing a divorce. So, you know, that had caused Diana to say, you know, enough of this, come back to London, uh, where he followed her, promised to do better, you know, move the divorce along. And here are some big diamonds for you. Come back with me. Uh, and and boy, I'm getting these like, wait a minute, is this the, the, the you know, canning <laughs> you over again yeah. here? What? With the with the pearls and you know Stephen and Diana's frank conversation about canning, but at that time 
you know, Diana said, well, you know, I'm kind of overstating it, but we're not hearing that this time. Oh. Sounds like she's pretty terrified. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, the Diamonds is a pretty pro move for Johnson. <laughs> for Diana yeah, Villiers, right. you know, that, that, yeah. that, however bad you are, that gets you a lot. <laughs> That's right. But she's not, she, she, she's, she can be shallow, but she's not all that shallow. And yeah. it's funny, we've talked a little bit online as well about how there's a turning point coming. For the last few books, I think you and I have been on Team Stephen and seeing the real terrible influence that pursuing diana has on him and how she has the capacity and often uses it to hurt and humiliate and wound him and there's a big old story arc with diana and maybe there's a bit of a turning point here we're able to see that she i mean apart from being abused literally by some of the other men that she's got connected with especially johnson she's been out of place and one of the features of the two men that have tried to take her away into protection, Canning and Johnson, they've both taken her to other places. Canning took her to India, I think. Right. And Johnson took her to America. And she's never really been able to be in a place where she can be Diana. And being out of place is almost as bad for her as as being under obligation to somebody. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, we learned that uh, even when she went back to England, you know, he came over, he chased after her, and he deceived her. He, you know, he engaged her in his intelligence network, working with Louise Wogan, but didn't let her know about that. She thought this was about stocks and money uh, in, in terms of Johnson's intelligence work. She thought that she was just being passing, you know, kind of some dalliance papers with Louisa Wogan uh, yeah. and thought Louisa had been having an affair. But then Louisa's arrested. Diana's questioned at the home office back in London. And, you know, she agrees to go back to America with Johnson because she lost her head. Um, you know, she was like, oh my gosh, I'm being interrogated. And I'm sure Johnson played this up pretty badly and she runs off with him. But now, you know, to your point about being gone, she sees herself as being in an enemy country, expected to work yeah. against her country, to be pleased when Royal Navy ships are taken. Uh, and she says, Stephen, taken. It went right to my heart, straight to my heart. Every one of those frigates we were so proud of. Yeah. And there were three of them without a single victory. And the Americans do so crow. And I see English officers walking about prisoners of war. It's unspeakable. So, you know, it's kind of, as you say, maybe a little bit of a turn in this arc, because I'm starting to feel a little bit like, well, now, Diana, that's, I can, you know, I, I relate to that. Yeah. And I'm just going to have a very quick hark back to the conversation with Gord Larko. One of the things that's redeeming Diana is her pride in the naval service. And we've talked about the yeah. the, the pride and honor of being part of the tradition of naval service. M maybe you could say Diana at her peak so far was at the ball at Melbury Lodge with uh, all the naval officers present and she was looking stunning and there were naval signal bunting flags on the wall saying, engage the enemy more closely. <laughs> right, right. And she's owning up now. And I like the fact she's owning up to the fact that she's genuinely heartbroken by the loss of face and the, the setbacks that have befallen the British Navy with apologies to American listeners. But well, you know, it's interesting <laughs> not in I'm remembering back as you bring that up about that ball in that when Sophie was on her way to the Admiral's house to learn more about the Navy, Diana was already coming back. She'd already <laughs> been there. She already knew about the weather gauge, right? Yeah. Stephen 
trying to do what he does, which is to help people solve problems and to get themselves into a better situation, starts to ask Diana about what's going on now, specifically with the relationship with Johnson and citizenship. And he says, had she become an American citizen? And she says she had signed papers of citizenship to make his divorce easier. She couldn't believe, it says, that Johnson would expect her, the daughter of a soldier who'd served the king all his life, to to start to work against her country. And that he's really badly misjudged where Diana's allegiances lie and just how willing is she to go along with this idea of, of intriguing against England. It says she writes letters to his Frenchman for him, but she will never work against England. And apparently Johnson is a true believer, a real fanatic. I mean, he's not only doing yeah. this and recruiting Diana Avery, he's spending all his money, his fortune, his estates in this cause. And he's so incredibly passionate against the things that Diana hates, and she is absolutely desperate to get out. Yeah. There are all sorts of options that Stephen's got here. She's, in a way, Diana Villiers is really lucky that at this low point of being trapped in a relationship with a violent, slaving, womanizing lover who tries to suborn her into intriguing against her own country, she's come up against her old, old, old friend and lover, Stephen Matron, who has access to money and resources and information and links and political connections. He could restore all of this, Mike, in any number of ways in his persona as being connected with the Navy, connected with intelligence, connected with the world of politics. What's the card that he chooses to play to help her out of the situation that she's in? Well, here it is. You know, he's he's realized that he doesn't love her anymore. And he realizes that even in the midst of her passionate speech to him about her dire circumstances, you know, that she's not being completely honest. And that, you know, he had seen through the way she was treating Louisa Wogan at dinner, realized that she, Diana, was being overthrown, being replaced, and that Diana was not used to being in that position. She was never replaced by another woman. Uh, He knows she's afraid of Johnson. He knows she's desperate. So to your point, you know, I don't love you anymore. I see through you. You're desperate. Uh, What does he say? Turning, he said, listen, my dear, you must marry me. That will make you a British subject again. You will come back with us as my wife. It will be a purely nominal marriage, a mariage blanc, if you wish. Oh, Stephen, she cried, springing up with a look of gratitude and trust and affection that it filled his heart with guilt and remorse. I knew I could always rely on you. She embraced him, pressing him close, and he concealed his lack of physical emotion by pressing her closer still. Wow. <gasps> dum, I, dum, dum. <laughs> I'm looking at the book going, are you kidding me? <laughs> You know, going back to the Princess Bride, this is even worse than the kissing points. What are you saying? <laughs> it's such a great moment. He's got us to this point, the most unlikely. Well, I, th- I think you could sort of feel that it was coming in a way, but he's right. set so many of the circumstances against this. You know, Stephen at long last doesn't quite feel like he's in love with her anymore. And he's got all these other things that he could do to help her. And she's dead. Oh, Stephen. 
Right. As Gord says, you know, the, the French have all the wind and the English are up front rowing boats to pull a ship into the fog. Wait, no, <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. What is going on here? Oh, wow. So I think this is this is the turning point, Mike. I think you're right. Pieces of the puzzle are starting to fall into place for Jack. Stevens gone right out on the farthest limb of all and made his second offer of marriage to Diana for which his reward is a thank you and a hug and I knew I could always rely on you. Right. They're in Boston in the fog. Yeah. <laughs> That's They've met the captain of the Chesapeake. HMS Shannon is in the bay. They know the waterways. Something's going on next time. Yeah. And I wonder what will be. And you still have this, you know, incredibly dangerous and jealous Johnson whose girl despite the fact that he doesn't want her anymore, Stephen has just proposed to. That can't be good. (laughs) So I suppose it's worth continuing. Well, what do you say, Ian, next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. Kissing point. <laughs> <laughs>